Gareth Owen is the Humanitarian Director of Save the Children UK. In this episode, we hear how he manages to match the resilience of those he's helping on the front lines. It was myself and another, another Westerner uh, who was a bit older than me. We didn't like each other at all. I explain all that in the book. And our 400 Somali staff, the vast majority of whom were men. Um, and pretty quickly, I learned something amazing. I learned that the power of human connection is an extraordinary thing. And you have no choice in a setting like that but to make human connections and to get on with the people around you, and you don't, you don't always succeed. But I had no idea I'd be spending so much time in the company of foreign militaries, uh, whose job it was, having imposed martial law on a very proud nation, uh, to keep order and to keep me safe. Um, so I, I was rubbing shoulders with the French Foreign Legion, who are a very unique bunch of people, uh, the Greek Special Forces, also a very unique bunch of people. And you, d- you, you develop these very strong bonds, even though I was a middle-class kid from Reading, with this extraordinary uh, array of characters. Um, and of course, and this may feel strange, not to everyone in the room, but to some, this was long before the time of the internet or mobile phones. Uh, so literally, when you're out in the middle of the, the, the Somali desert, uh, your only means of communication then was a bush radio, an HF radio, which you might use once a day. Um, and no news was literally good news. If they didn't hear from me for a week, everything was fine, even though this was a very lawless, very dangerous place. How different to today, where if you're the boss of an aid agency and you want to know something about any country in the world, you send an email and somebody jumps to it. 30 years ago, life wasn't like that. And we really were, and it's going to sound cheesy, but we formed such strong human connections, such strong bonds. We were a brand of brothers and sisters together. Um, and it was an extraordinary time. It's very different now. As the humanitarian director of Save the Children, and there are at least two former members or current members of my staff <laughs> staring at me right now, they know full well, and they're from the next generation, that we don't send 24-year-old kids from Reading <laughs> to the front line of humanitarian operations very often. Um, And people have said to me, well, when they join my organisation, say the children today, oh, I want the kind of experiences that you had. And I say to them, well, it's a bit like me saying I want to be a Spitfire pilot. It's from a a completely different era. It doesn't work like that anymore. And after about five or six months being right in the remote part of Somalia, and I just to distribute food over an enormous area, it was 125 kilometres north-south, it was 250 kilometres east-west, so you can do the math, a huge area, 75,000 people. Our job was to get food out into that area every month. And we used to drive around in a Second World War army jeep, a Willys jeep, for those who uh, can imagine what that, that is. Um, and after about five or six months, I switched to another location inside Somalia, a place called Baidoa, which people may have heard of. Um, and it was, it was infamous, I suppose, is the right word, because Baidoa was the epicentre of the famine. So much so that 300,000 people had died across Somalia, but a huge number of them had made their way to Baidoa in desperation. It was their last hope, and there they died. Uh, So it became known at the time as the city of death. Um, And of course, as a result, it attracted huge numbers of aid agencies. It became a real aid bubble, a real aid hub, an aid circus, in all honesty. 
And for someone who'd spent their formative months adjusting to this kind of new reality, way out in the in the desert, going into the sort of the aid metropolis was a very strange experience. Things like coordination meetings and, and parties and things. So, so it was a real shock to my system. And by that stage also, Somalia was recovering from its famine and its civil war. And the idea of kind of this imposition of 30,000 foreign soldiers and martial law was, as you'd expect, by a very proud, you know, resilient nation. It's like, well, hang on. You know, we don't think we need this here anymore. Would you ever mind leaving? And the reason for that was there was a, a power struggle that hadn't been resolved. The, the, the kind of the imposition of, of the, you know, the Western conceit of, of what happened meant that the local kind of uh, power dynamics hadn't resolved themselves as a res post-Civil War. Um, so we were all thoroughly rejected quite quickly. And some people are, might be familiar with the end game, as it were, in 1993. Has anyone seen the movie Black Hawk Down? So that's Hollywood's depiction of events that occurred on the 3rd of October 1993, which is known as the Battle of Mogadishu, where 18 American rangers were killed uh, in, a, in a huge firefight with... Uh, the Somali warriors, who had decided they'd, really, they'd had enough. But what that movie doesn't do, of course, because it's the Western narrative, it's the, uh, it's the victor's kind of writing history, it doesn't explain why the Somalis were going to oust everybody. It doesn't explain that United Nations peacekeepers, in the name of nation-building, had murdered up to 7,000 Somalis, mostly by the US, using aerial firepower, including deliberately killing all the clan leaders of South Mogadishu uh, on one infamous day known as Bloody Monday. Most people in the West know that, that four Western journalists were killed on that day. They don't really know why. So this is what I mean about history. In reactivating this story, which is it's old ground for those who remember, a lot of this has been written about, a lot of it's out there. But we forget very quickly these kind of stories. Um, and it's important to reactivate the, the history, and that's kind of why I've, I've written this book, you know, When the Music's Over. Because if we don't do that, it's impossible to contend with the very legitimate debates that are taking place in the aid world today around coloniality, the enduring, nagging coloniality that exists in aid, the uncomfortable, difficult notions of white saviorism, and the racial hierarchies that exist in the world and in the aid sector. And if you don't know the history, then how are you going to really contend with these things in a, in a proper way? Um, the Irish Times described my, my book as an unflattering account, but one that explains why in Somalia there is a strong antipathy towards the West. So I'm happy with that. It's, that's the honesty of what I was writing about. So it really was a very dark chapter in, in the history of international relations and in notions of how can you kill 7,000 people when you're trying to, trying to keep the peace? It's very odd, isn't it? But let's look at what's happening in the world today and you know, we can get on to uh, uh, that in a sec. But what I really want to stress, rather, and so that explains why history is important, what I really want to stress is this incredible power of human connection. And when you mobilise human connection, amazing things can happen. And when you connect to your humanity within amazing things can happen for you. And that's why the power of hope is so remarkable, because humanitarian action, at its heart, is about hope and human connection. That's what it's really about. So for me, Shambhala is a humanitarian event, and I think a lot of people feel that, right? Um, so it's great to be here. But equally, after 30 years of humanitarian work, um, I, I 
was overseas in lots of countries. After Somalia, I was reassigned to uh, Angola, which was experiencing a brutal civil war. Um, that's the book I'm currently writing about. Uh, I, was, I experienced uh, a lot of personal trauma there because it was a very violent place. I've lived with the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder ever since. It's not described in those terms. Well, it wasn't 30 years ago. I was just tired, a bit burnt out, and in need of rest. It wasn't, a, it wasn't acknowledged in the way it is today. Um, and I started writing the book probably about 10 years ago uh, as a hobby. And I only really finished it when I had a moment of deep personal trauma, which was when my mother died in 2018. And my mother was the kind of centre of gravity of emotional support in my world. Um, and I finished the book in her honour. Um, so one of the things I say at the very end is, is if you do 30 years of humanitarian work, and I've been to many wars since Somalia and Angola, um, in the last 20 years as, uh, at Save the Children, the last 16 of which I've been the director of the humanitarian department, uh, I've been involved either directly or indirectly in, well, ev everything you've heard about, every major humanitarian crisis. Um, and when you spend that much time engaging with, well, I'll call it what it feels like, you know, human misery, uh, the, you, know, you, you, you end up with a very heavy heart. It's, it's unavoidable that, that that becomes part of you and your identity. But at the same time, you are imbued with endless hope. And for humanitarian aid workers, all, your only real option is to summon hope. It's the only real thing that keeps you going, no matter what the circumstances are. And that is possible for all of us in life, right? No matter what we're facing, we can summon the hope. It's within us. So you, though you're, you have this kind of deep heaviness and this kind of melancholia, because you've seen most of the worst of, of, of humanity, um, you're also unbelievably inspired unbelievably inspired every day. So I've mentioned Somalia from 30 years ago. Somalia is experiencing another grave crisis as we speak. I mentioned the four failed rains. There are upwards of 400,000 children who are right at risk right now in Somalia. Uh, they will die over the summer before Christmas unless there is a massive intervention. And it's brutal to say that, but it is true. Um, so you have to look at that and say, right, what are we going to do about it? And then you realise that Women, and I've spent, I've, today's been a lot, it's been beautiful, it's been, especially being here, because women are amazing, and I'm, I think of the, here's an example, a Somali mother called Yasmin, who in June, this June, she walked two days and two nights to bring her two-year-old child to our health centre in Baidoa. We worked out the distance. In Somalia, they talk about, they don't talk about distance, they talk about how long they've been walking. That's a, and we figured that was at least, and then we looked at the map, 90 kilometres. So a mother carrying, by the way, a two-year-old child. Imagine walking. How, who's come from further than 90 kilometres to Shambhala? Imagine walking it. That's the sort of resilience I'm talking about. That's the sort of inner strength. And uh, Yasmin had, I think she was 39, I think she had nine children. Uh, the oldest was 19, and then she was bringing her youngest, who was two, who was very severely ill when we, when we, when we, we saw her. Uh, she had severe uh, uh, dehydration, she had diarrhoea, she was very severely malnourished, and her mother had done the right thing. She'd left other children behind, but she, she'd lost a child a couple of months earlier to measles, and she was determined that her youngest, was not going to, her youngest daughter was not going to die. Had she got to us two days later, I'm afraid her child would have died. But a week later, she was well on the road to recovery because children also incredibly resilient. So that's the sort of inspiration we get in our world. So you don't have the option of despair in our world. My sort of liberal idealism 
has gone, right? They sort of saved the world. The big debates that are very, very, very important today weren't as front and centre to my generation of humanitarians. But even after a third of a century of contending with the world's disasters, I am absolutely as hopeful as ever. I haven't lost any of it. Um, but these lessons from history are really important because we, here we are in the Imaginarium, right? And the world needs to reimagine its future. It absolutely needs to reimagine a different future. And that is never something, and I've learned this, that we can do in isolation, not as individuals, not as a nation. It is, we are one shared humanity. We share one planet. And that is always going to be the case. But it is difficult at the moment. To my generation of humanitarians, you know, the idea of respect for values you know, in our formative society here, and there's a lot about that around, it meant that you could, therefore, if you were going to respect values at home, you could not be a bystander to egregious abuse of values abroad. That was our mental kind of worldview. Um, and it's always the lot of humanitarians to push the world to act in furtherance of humanity. It's always our job. And we do, we absolutely do have the ability to change our circumstances for the better and to change global humanity circumstances. But it is not easy, goes without saying. And it is also the case, and I would contend, and I'd be interested in your views, that we are going in the wrong direction as a, as a global society at the moment. I'm afraid I'm going to strap in, folks. I'm going to describe a pretty bleak picture for a couple of minutes, but then I'm going to resort to hope. Okay? So it is unquestionably the case, in my experience, that notions of universal peace and international solidarity are receding in today's world. It's almost as if one long lifetime since the end of the Second World War, where 50 million people died, where the United Nations was created, where the opening lines of the UN Charter say something along the order of, we the peoples of the world come together to rid future generations of the scourge of warfare that twice in our lifetimes have, un have wrought untold misery on mankind. Whatever the words are, I can't remember the exact. But is it just because one long lifetime has passed that we've forgotten about that? We seem to be receding away from these notions. The global political economy is still dominated by a declining Western liberal order. Um, and that Western liberal order, which we're all part, has stopped imagining new utopias. It's, it's stopped imagining a different future, as far as I can see. And we are seeing the rise of inter-imperial conflict again. That's what Ukraine is about. Since the end of the Second World War, humanity can sort of see how it ends for humanity. <laughs> We call it this the Anthropocene age. You know, our fate is the world's fate is no longer a natural thing. It's in our hands, right? Since the creation of, of the bomb, um, and isn't it interesting that there are invocations of nuclear war around Ukraine? I mean, it's it's kind of it's on, on the agenda, right? It's terrifying. Uh, and if you add sort of climate change into the mix, then suddenly we've sort of got this horrible, cat catastrophic sense of a near impending kind of jeopardy. Um, but at the same time, we're all trapped in this kind of capitalist, consumerist reality, right? Um, a model that just seems no longer tethered to any notions of sort of social good and is just sort of hanging out there and definitely not tethered to any kind of prudent fiscal policy. Um, we only have to look at what's happening to the price of, uh, yeah, of, uh, of you know, fuel. So what's happened is that we've had this kind of series of shocks in the world since 2008, starting with the financial crisis, which triggered a global food price crisis. There's another one going on right now. Then we had, I'm not sure if I've got the order right, but the Arab Spring, um, starting in Tunisia, working our way across. Some people over here got involved in Libya when it happened. 
And we dreaded it going into Syria because we knew what would happen in Syria, and it's absolutely happened. We knew that that would be, uh, wouldn't end well. Um, we've had a variety of mass protest movements, which I'm a big fan of, you know, Occupy and all the rest of it. Uh, but we've also had this rise of populism, um, as we all know. And this sort of erosion of rights and the erosion of, sort of civil society space is happening in a very pervasive way around the world, and including here in the UK, in many sort of subtle ways. Um, and we're seeing a rise of conflict as a result in the world. So we have more refugees and displaced people today than at any time since the Second World War. And if you happen to be an unfortunate refugee or displaced person today, you will stay in that circumstance for many years, many years now, because the international apparatus that was designed to resolve diplomatically conflicts around the world is utterly defunct. You've got China and Russia on the Security Council, and that's the end of the matter, right? So nothing gets fixed anymore. So long-running wars like Syria, like Yemen, they don't like Afghanistan. They don't have the apparatus to sort of resolve things in the in the same way. So you're already feeling terrible, aren't you? Is everyone like really? Oh my God, we're having such a nice time at Shambhala. I haven't even mentioned nature fighting back. You know, nature has fought back, right? Um, the pandemic. Well, I, th I can't remember, but in my time in Save the Children since 2002, there had been at least six, seven or eight, nine occasions where we thought a pandemic was going to happen, whether it was avian flu, swine flu, the list goes on. It, it was inevitable that eventually this was going to happen, and it will happen again. Nature is fighting back. Um, so, and that sort of plunged everybody into this kind of survivalist mentality where the sort of fear and the fatigue, everything, everything that's messy and difficult, just suddenly feels 10 times harder to resolve. And so we end up in this kind of inward-looking, deeply melancholic place. I'm sorry, folks, I'll end in a second, bring it up again. Um, and worse, we've been colonised by technology, right? Who's wandered around in the last couple of days going, where's my signal? You know, we've been colonised, and it's, not, it's intentional, and it's pervasive, and it's not neutral, and it's colonised our minds, right? So, and what's happened, I think, and we, you know, I'm part of a group that sort of philosophises about these things, um, the spirit of activism that was foundational in, in humanitarian action, certainly over the last long century, has been sort of weakened. So Save the Children is a wonderful organisation founded by two sisters um, from Shropshire 100 years ago. Um, and they were visionaries. They were also quite, uh, you know, they were communists, uh, one of them was at least, and suffragettes and all sorts of things. But they could have just lived the, you know, the kind of quiet life of Victorian Shropshire gentry, but they chose to take a different view for the world. So they had this sort of spirit of, but it was a political project for them from, from the get-go. And as it was for the kind of movements that created sans frontierism in the 60s, they were political activists who found a home for their, for their kind of beliefs in humanitarian action. And has that been weakened because we're products of the zeitgeist where everything's been weakened? So, you know, we inside humanitarian organisations are contending with these kind of thoughts all the time. So it can lead to this kind of emotional lethargy, uh, lethargy sorry. And then we're left with a really stark choice. Fight back or give up. It's that, it's that simple. And we have to contend with all of this, folks. It affects us all. But at the same time, we have to try our best not to get depressed. Someone at work said to me recently, Gareth, I really need you to be my source of hope in all this. Because how to stay positive? Well, it's this simple. If, as I do, you believe in the power of hope, then you have to intentionally be hopeful. 
You can't say I believe in hope and then sort of, but hang on, I'm just going to, I'm going to sort of spend the next hour moaning. Um, and there's an old saying in the humanitarian world, which is, it's not the bombs and bullets that are our worst enemy, it's our own despair. So it's this kind of intentional decision to be hopeful. And it's not an easy one. It's a contest within ourselves that we are going to live with uh, and continuously. But here's the thing. If you take the hope, and if you, and there's so much hope here, it's wonderful, right? If you find an avenue for that, about, that takes you into sort of purposeful action, I would say that my last 30 years, I've, I've had the benefit of this, so I'm talking from you know, lived experience. If you do that, then on a personal level, something very beautiful happens. The neuropsychology of this is, is well studied. The science says this. Something very, some kind of magical thing will happen. There's, there are studies after studies that show that when people live their values, when they live through a hopeful worldview uh, in their lives, and when they really embody that, their motivation is better, their well-being is better, their health is better, their human connections are more powerful, and lo and behold, quality outcomes are derived from that. The science of this is very clear. These days I do quite a lot of coaching and mentoring, and we get into this big time for people who haven't yet tuned in. Um, so that's the thing, right? So why do I sort of sit here and talk in these terms? Because the next decade, and I mean this, is utterly pivotal. The next decade is the one, right? We will be in a vastly different place 10 years from now. And so it is on this, right? It's absolutely on. And that can create a lot of anxiety. It can create huge amounts of anxiety in people when they really think about that. If we don't solve stuff in the next 10 years... It's not a, we're not going in a good direction. So we've got to contend with all this. And I think the starting point is not to say we all have to become, you know, kind of act, activists and we all have to start joining humanitarian organisations. Whatever walk of life you're in, and I'm sure you all do different things, here's the thing, right? You can always be humanitarian in, in any walk of life. It's not a, yes, we built institutions for it and kind of all the... But it doesn't, that's not the point. The point is we've all got our humanity and you can practice that wherever you go in any walk of life. So I say to everybody, be as successful as you can possibly be in any walk of life. Be whatever you want to be. Be the best version of you in whatever circumstances. But don't just do that for yourself. Do that for all those around you as well. I mean, part of my job is, uh, is, is I'm not operational anymore. I'm old and all the rest of it. But I do the fundraising quite a lot. And I have met some of the richest people in the world. I'm talking dudes who've got billions, right? I mean one person uh, who gave away $32 billion. The thing about those people is, right, and they're quite, they can be quite generous. I got uh, quite a lot of money out of that particular gentleman. But what you tend to find, and I've met a lot of them, is they start giving away their really big wealth towards a certain stage of life, right? And in this particular gentleman's case, when he, when he announced he was going to give away all his money, and he was very proud of that fact, he did it from his office. And behind him on the shelves were a series of private jets. So when he only had a few billion, he, you know, he, he was sort of a Learjet, G6. Then he got a few more billion, so he upgraded to a 727, you know, a passenger jet. And when he was really minted, like, you know, filthy rich, you know, bring me my unicorn steak, you know, he got himself a jumbo jet for himself. And he had a gold throne in it. And then he realised that he didn't feel any better inside. So he's like, oh, I better get, maybe giving away all of this will make me feel better. And it's like, mate, you're in your 60s. How about you shared some of the love, shared some of this ridiculous wealth along the way? Maybe the world would look a bit different. 
Um, anyway, there you go. When I was in Somalia 30 years ago, I didn't realise that my sort of career, which I fell into as a volunteer, was coinciding with this kind of really unique period in international relations. And this is where I think it's very relevant to today. So George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., he was president, he was an outgoing president, he was going to hand over to, uh, I think Bill Clinton, wasn't it? Bill Clinton had won the election. So he could look out from the sort of Oval Office, not just as sort of commander-in-chief of the US, but commander-in-chief of a victory over the Cold War, right? The Cold War was over, the West has won. Even people like Francis Fukuyama hasn't read his book, you know, End of History. We declare an end. This is it, we've won. How wrong we were. The conceit, right? The conceit of that, right? And so... This is why history matters, because now we get to Ukraine. Let's look how we've dealt with uh, Mr. Putin, right? Um, my favourite description of him is someone who's inhaled his own delusions. And that was Neil Kinnock's description on a podcast. And I think that's the story. He's not a madman. He's not a madman. He's a thug. And he plays politics the old way. But it is also inevitably the case that in the West, we have been complacent, arrogant and naive in dealing with uh, Mr. Putin. Um, and it was, it was Theodore Roosevelt in 1903 who described sort of international relations and definitely he was talking about America. You know, I think it, the phrase was walk softly and carry a big stick was the kind of worldview. Well, these days, I mean, the West bellows loudly and waves a straw. And if you do that in the face of bullies, you get bullied. But when you analyse a crisis, and this is kind of my job, I'm a strategist, I, we have to plan stuff. You have to look at what's going on in the moment. Because you have to go back, the best advice I've been given on, on this stuff is go back 10 years to look at the run-up, then go back 100 years and you'll find out why. So if you go back a bit more than 10 years, if you go back to 2008, the NATO summit in 2008, 0.23 of the communique out of the NATO summit in 2008 said, we, the West, look forward to welcoming Georgia and Ukraine into NATO at some time in the near future. So red rag to a bull. No more of a red rag than the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in 1962. And straight away, Russia invaded Georgia, then the Crimea was annexed, then the Donbass. So it's not happenstance. It's not the act of a madman. You have to look at what, how, how we arrived at this point. Um, and then if you go back 100 years, you get to the Bolshevik Revolution in, in 1917. The Ukrainian Bolsheviks ousted uh, you know, the incumbent government in, in, in the Ukraine region. And Ukraine became part of the Soviet Union in 1922. So there is a history to why this is going on. You know, this is not the Western gaze version of events. You have to see past the curtain. And that's partly why writing books like this are important, because what you get with experience, and when you're contending with this stuff all the time, is you realise it's all in the nuance. It's all in the grey. Nothing is black and white. Nothing is one-sided. Ukraine has compounded an already massive hunger crisis um, around the world. And I'm afraid the place that's experiencing the worst of the hunger crisis right now is Somalia. So just as it was 30 years ago. And it's the fourth time in my 30-year career that we've had to contend with the risk of famine in Somalia. And the last three times have been in the last 10 years. So that's climate change for you. So this stuff comes around again, and that's why you need to know the history. And we dreaded Ukraine because we knew it would compound the famine risk. And we knew that the need for early action has, was well passed. And by now, we'd hope to be you know, well into mobilising a massive response. And we just haven't done that because the engagement with the publics, the, which creates the political currents that allow for change, you know, it hasn't, we haven't made the cut through. And we've, we've been trying very hard. We're getting there, but it's slow. 
And the real story of that, of course, is, you know, I, I would never begrudge anybody the world, an abundance of the world's compassion in their hour of need. $60 million was mobilised by the world for Ukraine uh, in the space of a month. But it's taken us eight months, in the case of Somalia, to mobilise about two-thirds of the money needed to prevent the crisis. So do your own conclusions on that. What's that about? And you can't avoid the idea that certain lives in this world are valued more than others, and that's just the brutal truth. So we have to redress all these imbalances. But the other thing about hope is it's never too late to try. I mean, if that mother is going to walk for 90 kilometres, then it's not our job to not be there at the end of that 90-kilometre walk. It's our job to be there. So when you get this kind of human connection, and we've got this beautiful human connection around us here, when you add that all up, when you get that sense of purpose, you create a force for change. You absolutely can create a force for change. Um, and it's a force for good. And it mobilises it in the name of solidarity. That's the point. That's what we stand for in our kind of organisations. Um, and there is much need in the world. We used to talk about three Cs, COVID, conflict and climate. We now have to add a fourth C, which is cost. Uh, and that's the world we're all, we're all contending with. And so at the start of this year, we, we, the UN produces like its global kind of humanitarian kind of outlook. 274 million people are going to need humanitarian aid this year. That was before Ukraine. I can tell you now that number, add another 100. And the total bill for that is estimated, you know, in terms of providing everything that's needed to prevent, you know, to provide the humanitarian relief, is about $50 billion globally. Now that might sound like a lot of money, until you realise that every day on the SWIFT system, are people familiar with the interbanking system called SWIFT? The guy who runs that told me, we trade $35 trillion every day on the SWIFT system. There's $32 trillion in capital stash in the Cayman Islands, I think it is, or the Canary Islands. We spend more on bubblegum, we spend more on hairspray, we spend more on bottled water than we do on humanitarian response every year. Um, and by the way, of that $50 billion, the world has mobilised about a third. And here we are, almost into September. So... Where's the hope in all that, you might say? And uh, it's in you. That's the point. It's, that, it's in that intentional choice. It's in fucking keeping going. It's, that's what it's in. Every day. Getting up and saying, I'm not giving up. Because you have to match the resilience of the people that you're working with. They don't give up. They have no choice. We don't either. So when you are the best version of yourself every day, and you can always offer yourself this kindness, I've learned this the hard way, the hope is inside you, right? It's there. It's waiting to be let out. It's waiting to challenge the fear. And it's never too late. So it starts with your relationship with yourself. And we talk a lot about, you know, oh, people are too emotional. You know, so there's no such thing, right? All human behaviour, and if you haven't studied neuroscience, you know, you, you either know this or you don't, it, it's not rational. Right? Human behaviour, it's driven by emotional decisions that we make. So when you tune into that, when you, get, when you generate that self-awareness, and, and it takes effort. It took me 25 years to realise that I, I hadn't failed when I had PTSD. <laughs> wasn't my fault entirely. I carried the guilt of that for 25 years. I had some help to realise that maybe that wasn't tuning into myself in necessarily a resourceful way. Um, you, you know, you, you go somewhere different. You know, and, the, and the compassion is about vulnerability. It allows us to say, here I am. Vulnerability, and uh, you know, that's the interesting human, isn't it? So you know, you allow your vulnerability to, to be a strength by tuning into it and just having a whole load of self-compassion for yourself. And when you give yourself that kindness, and you can always do it, right? You can be that self, you get that self-compassion is a, is a form of kindness that we can always offer ourselves, right? Then you get this kind of resilience from that, this inner strength that comes out that allows you to contend with the world. You have to stand up in the wind and just you know, stand tall and be vulnerable, be all those things. Yeah, let's challenge our government right now, shall we? Let's stand up and say, hold on, outsourcing asylum to a very unpleasant regime, somewhere and processing. This language is very frightening, right? Are we going to challenge that? We should. So we can't recede from human connection. 
And this is where I'll end. The question to ask yourself is, how are we going to adapt and prevail today? What are we going to do today? That The next five minutes, the next hour, that's going to make it all a bit better. Find that emotional place within. Have that honest, honest scrutiny and get help for that if you need it. Um, and accept that life is full of light and dark and you know, happy and sad. And if you do all that, and I've had to learn this, and it's only really in the last few years, then the anxiety is reduced. And when you put some purposeful action in that, you just feel better, folks. So thank you very much. Thank you, Gareth, for sharing your hopeful lessons. We need them now more than ever. His book, When the Music is Over, is out now. It's part memoir, part history and part politics. And it's also a story about human connection in desperate circumstances. That's it for now. We hope you'll join us for the next one.